Good morning and welcome to the Salisbury Pediatric Audio Newscast for the Salisbury Pediatric Newsletter. I'm your host, Dr. M, and today we are going to look at volume 11, issues number 33 and number 35. They correspond specifically with COVID volumes number 41 and 42. As always, let's get through the disclaimer and then let's start the discussion. The information provided in this newsletter is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician and or healthcare professional, and it does not constitute a diagnosis or treatment of a health issue. This newsletter audio cast does not constitute the development of a patient and provider relationship, and I hope you enjoy this podcast. I have to say this, folks, I was really hoping that the COVID newsletters would disappear and the weekly newsletter would revert back to the general medicine and pediatrics topics. But alas, it looks like we're going to be doing this for a bit longer as the Delta variant has changed all of the calculus on that reality. So let's look at this. The Delta variant is here in significant volumes, and almost all cases are in unvaccinated individuals, but there are some cases in vaccinated individuals. These vaccinated breakthrough cases with the Delta variant are not causing significant diseases in almost all cases. To my knowledge, there are fleeting you few reports of death in the U.S. in vaccinated people. The rates of death among fully vaccinated people with COVID-19 were even lower effectively uh, to zero in all but two reported cases in Arkansas and Michigan, where they were uh, at a 0.001% death risk. This comes from kaiserfamilyfoundation.org. Uh, the link can be found in the newsletter. These changes are not an accident of viral activity so much as a problem of choice and outcome. If you have had two doses of the mRNA vaccines, you have a very, very, very small risk of a significant breakthrough infection, even a less chance of hospitalization and almost no chance of death from the Delta variant based on the statistics to date overall. Latest numbers can be found at Google or the CDC, um, and we're seeing as of today that there's 35 million cases uh, known and almost 613,000 deaths. That's about 5,000 more deaths than two weeks ago, and that's frustrating, but this is what happens when a mutation occurs. Most states are in a steady state with vaccinations, with some increasing vaccinations again, as Delta has changed some people's minds. Disease from SARS-2 is rising quickly because of Delta's increased transmissibility and the available unvaccinated population and those who have never been sick before. Almost all cases, as I stated earlier, are unvaccinated people, and there are increasing larger pockets of disease in these poorly vaccinated communities. The hospitalizations so far appear to be mostly in unvaccinated communities and people, and the ICUs are almost entirely with unvaccinated people. There's still no change in the knowledge that uh, the disease is primarily affecting the elderly, with 94% of all deaths associated with a comorbid health condition, including the metabolics of diabetes, heart disease, high blood pressure, and obesity. As with the original newsletter, since the beginning, 99, excuse me, 99 plus percent chance of survival no matter what you do, and a 99.9998% chance of survival once you've had two MNRA vaccines. All right, let's get into this. Coronavirus issue update 41. Number one, a few people are asking about the need to vaccinate if you've already had COVID natural illness. What's the story here? Hot off the press from Cell Reports Medicine, we see, quote, ending the COVID-19 pandemic will acquire long-lived immunity to SARS-CoV-2. 
Here we evaluate 254 COVID-19 patients longitudinally up to eight months and find durable, broad-based immune responses. SARS-CoV-2 spike binding protein and neutralizing antibodies exhibit a biphasic decay with an extended half-life of around 200 days or more, suggesting the generation of long-lived plasma cells. SARS-CoV-2 infection also boosts antibody titers to SARS-CoV-1 and common beta coronaviruses. In addition, spike-specific IgG plus memory B cells are present, which bodes well for a rapid antibody response upon viral re-exposure or vaccination. Virus-specific CD4 and CD8-positive T cells are polyfunctional and maintained with an estimated half-life of 200 days. Interestingly, CD4 T cell responses equally target several SARS-CoV-2 proteins, whereas the CD8-positive T cell responses preferentially target the nuclear protein. Highlighting the potential importance of including the nuclear protein in future vaccines. Taken together, these results suggest that broad and effective immunity may persist long-term in recovered COVID-19 patients. This comes from Cohen et al. in 2021. The links, as always, can be found in the newsletter. This builds upon other studies finding very good long-term memory B and T cell responses after natural infection, especially with increasing severity of the natural illness. This means that in most cases, you are well protected from COVID after natural infection. However, some rare individuals will have a low antibody response and may also mount a weaker immune response the second time around, as has been shown. Predicting who those individuals are is not possible at this time on a population basis. Thus, there is a reasonable argument for COVID naturally infected individuals to get one booster dose of the mRNA vaccine to ensure a quality immunologic response upon pre-exposure or re-exposure to the virus. I cannot find any reasonable data or reason to get two doses in a series of individuals who've had the virus infection excuse me, before. There's three articles I cite here, Kramer F. et al. 2021, Sadat et al. 2021, and Abu Jamal et al. 2021. Number two, more on the, do you need a second dose of the vaccine? If you know that you had COVID already naturally, now we have longitudinal study that also finds that the second dose has no added benefit for those persons in the convalescent phase of SARS-2. They looked specifically at T-cell response and found that, quote, vaccine-elicited spike-specific T-cells responded similarly to stimulation by spike epitopes from the ancestral B1117 and B1351 variant strains, both in terms of cell numbers and phenotypes. In infection-naive individuals, the second dose boosted the quantity but not the quality of the T-cell response, while in convalescents, folks who had the infection before, the second dose helped neither. Spike-specific T-cells from convalescent vaccinees differed strikingly from those of infection-naive vaccinees, with phenotypic features suggesting superior long-term persistence and the ability to home to the respiratory tract, including the nasopharynx. That comes from Needleman et al. 2021. If you had natural infection and received one dose of a COVID vaccine, the T-cell function and by definition your outcome, if re-exposed, again, looks great. Thus, it makes logical sense now to prioritize vaccinating the global population with appropriate doses based on known convalescent history. Number three, variants. They continue to be a hot topic in getting hotter. SARS-CoV-2 version B1.617.2 Delta is now roughly 90% of the U.S. cases. 
Data for the Delta variant is still showing significantly increased transmissibility, more than 60% higher. The mRNA vaccines are still working quite well. The breakthrough cases in vaccinated persons with a Delta variant have been almost entirely asymptomatic with little to no risk of outcome negativity. There are reports out of Israel that the mRNA vaccines are less effective, 39% at preventing infections. However, they remain 88 to 91% effective in preventing hospitalizations and deaths, respectively, and clearly this is the most important piece of the information. This does conflict with the data out of the UK that remains at 88% for any symptomatic disease. Jones R. et al. 2021. The Delta variant is significantly more infectious than the original SARS-2 strain, but not more deadly overall. It appears to have viral loads a thousand times greater than the original strain as reported from the uh, data from China recently. Lee et al. 2021. This is important to reflect upon. Until we see a huge uptick in mortality, we can safely assume that our overall risk for a population once vaccinated, even with breakthrough cases, remains very, very, very small. History tells us that the pandemics are rarely, if ever, shifted into more deadly variants as this offers no advantage to the virus, whereas the increase in spread provides a huge advantage. Remember that the virus only evolves to enhance its survival. Killing the host is not in any circumstance more advantageous evolutionarily. According to recent CDC documents, the risk of contracting SARS-2 once vaccinated with two doses of the mRNA vaccine is reduced from 186 per 100,000 weekly cases for the unvaccinated to 21 per 100,000, which is an eight-fold reduction. Hospitalization is reduced by 25-fold, and death is reduced also by 25-fold. This comes from the CDC. The take-home point remains that vaccination is the only way to massively reduce your risk. As the pandemic rages on again, mask usage in higher risk locales while you continue to prask, excuse me, practice high quality lifestyle choices will keep the risk to the lowest possible level. And I would state that the second part, the lifestyle choices is always going to be critical because frankly, changing your antecedent lifestyle risk factors will lower your risk for all disease, not just SARS-CoV-2. Any future virus, any future problem will be mitigated significantly by changes in the antecedent triggers of inflammation and disease. There is still zero evidence that the Delta variant is more problematic to children at any age. We are still at our clinic sitting at around three patients admitted to the hospital with multi-inflammatory syndrome and very, very few kids that actually appear to be sick. Almost all the children that appear to be sick with COVID-19 are in their teenage years and the later end of the teenage years. So, so far so good with the Delta variant flying around, we are doing well. The Lambda variant that started in Peru is now in Texas and other parts of the United States. It is responsible for over 90% of the cases in South America with similarly high transmissibility and similar morbidity as it appears to be to Delta. mRNA vaccines continue to look effective for Lambda despite some poorly sensationalized media coverage stating that the vaccine failures were huge, making it clear that this data is based on the Chinese Corona vaccine, not our vaccine. So when you read data that says that the vaccine is no longer working for a specific strain of the virus, make sure you're checking which vaccine they're talking about because they don't give that information in the sensationalized news media these days. It's all about clickbait. As of this newsletter, I find no evidence that the Pfizer, Moderna, or any of our top mRNA vaccines uh, are failing for Lambda. This continues to follow the Delta variant research to date. 
There are some news that the gamma variant that is endemic in French Guinea, or excuse me, French Guyana, has a high rate of mRNA vaccine misfire or poor efficiency. However, this is not playing out anywhere else that I know. This likely leads to conclusion of a problem of cold storage during vaccine transport and the chain of events leading up to the administration. In the U.S., there have been very few breakthroughs overall at 555 and only 28 with the gamma variant. That comes from the CDC. So it's very, very important to follow the rules of vaccine storage preparation delivery from all companies that are doing this, and this is what this case likely points out. Number four. More on Delta from Nature. Quote, according to current estimates, the Delta variant could be more than twice as transmissible as the original SARS-2 strain, Alpha. To find out why, epidemiologist Jing Lu at the Guangdong Provincial Center for Disease Control and Prevention in Guangzhou, China, and his colleagues tracked 62 people who are quarantined after exposure to COVID-19 and who were some of the first people in mainland China to become infected with Delta strain. The team tested study participants' viral load, a measure of the density of the particles in the body, the viral particles in the body, every day throughout the course of infection to see how it changed over time. Researchers then compared participants' infection patterns with those of 63 people who contracted the original strain of SARS-CoV-2. In the preprint posted July 12th, the researchers report that virus was first detectable in people with a Delta variant four days after exposure compared to an average of six days for the original Alpha strain, suggesting that Delta replicates much faster. Individuals infected with Delta also had viral loads up to 1,260 times higher than those in the people infected with Alpha strain. The combination of a high number of viruses and a short incubation period makes sense as the explanation of Delta's heightened transmissibility, says epidemiologist Benjamin Cowling at the University of Hong Kong. The sheer amount of virus in the respiratory tract means that superspreading events are more likely to infect even more people now and that people might begin spreading the virus earlier after they become infected. That comes from Reardon 2021. Number five, why vaccinate teenagers? A few people have asked this question recently. The simple answer is as follows. Although teenagers are at very, very low risk for a problem, they are not at zero risk. The safety of the mRNA vaccines is excellent. Is it worth the off chance that your child loses his or or her sense of taste and smell possibly for life or worse, a serious myocarditis event or autoimmunity from a natural infection? I am seeing these types of cases in clinics save for the autoimmune stuff to date. It is as always, a weighing of an experimental scales. Which risk side is heavier? Is it the vaccine side that's more heavy or is it the actual natural risk side? I find in my research that the natural infection is much more dangerous to human health at teenage years than the vaccine. Number six, more on the origins theory of COVID. Catherine E. Ben and Dr. Peter Tia discuss her investigations in COVID origins in the Drive podcast, episode number 169. It is a very deep discussion into the lies, stories, and unknowns related to the start of the pandemic. The end result is as expected. We will likely never know the answer because the World Health Organization, the Chinese government, and the U.S. agencies involved did not do a remotely reasonable assessment of etiology and frankly obstructed the process. Mrs. Eban is very clear that she is not stating the final decision as we cannot, without hard science, proving a case. However, the the researchers still have not found an intermediary animal nor the index case bat making the lab leak theory possible, if not outright more likely by a long shot, than the natural source, uh, uh, in my opinion. The podcast is worth your time purely for the understanding of why each position 
as to the cause of the COVID has merit and where that is. I can't tell you I thoroughly enjoyed the podcast. Number seven, T-cell immunity for recovery from COVID-19 and provides heightened immunity for infection. Excuse me, T-cell Quote, T-cell immunity is important for COVID recovery and provides heightened immunity for reinfection. However, little is known about the SARS-CoV-2 specific T-cell immunity virus-specific individuals. Here we report virus-specific CD4 and CD8 T-cell memory in recovered COVID-19 patients in close contacts. We also demonstrate the size and quality of the memory T-cell pool of COVID-19 patients are larger and better than those of close contacts. However, the proliferation capacity, size, and quality of T-cell responses in close contacts are readily distinguishable from healthy donors, suggesting close contacts are able to gain T-cell immunity against SARS-CoV-2 despite lacking a detectable infection. Additionally, asymptomatic and symptomatic COVID-19 patients contain similar levels of SARS-CoV-2-specific T-cell memory. Overall, the study demonstrates the versatility and potential of memory T-cells from COVID-19 patients and close contacts, which may be important for host protection, Wang et al., 2021. So over the past few months, I've read a few, probably more than 10 studies now, looking at T-cell and B-cell memory related to COVID-19 infection and vaccination being very robust. And this is the key, because once you have been infected and or vaccinated, the chance of dying goes really, really, really far down, and even hospitalizations goes really far down. So I think we've got enough data now to know that once you've had a vaccine and or infection with a secondary vaccine even better, your risk of a bad outcome is pretty much gone. Okay, next, number eight. The effectiveness of the Pfizer mRNA vaccine against the Delta variant is 88% according to a new study in the New England Journal of Medicine this week, Bernal et al. 2021. This continues to be in line with other studies and is good news for the vaccinated population overall. Therefore, 12% will have a poorer response allowing for an infection, although likely very mild again. Wearing a mask if you're in a high-risk situation seems to be a really good idea if it is an indoor environment. Uh, I think that should be pretty much the mantra for the next few months of this wave, depending on how long it lasts. Wear a mask if you're indoors. Don't worry about it outdoors. Try and socially distance as best you can and just live a great life. Okay, I'm going to repeat a little bit of stuff from uh, a couple weeks ago because it was so important. If you haven't listened to the podcast with Dr. Danny Benjamin, I hope you will. It is excellent. He is a brilliant researcher and gave, gave really quality data to us all. So here we go. Highlights of the Women and Children First podcast with Dr. Danny Benjamin, professor of pediatric infectious diseases at Duke University. COVID mRNA vaccines for 12 and over. A few days ago, when discussing this with Dr. Benjamin, he stated that, you know, the COVID vaccine has already surpassed the necessary amount of time and number of inoculated children over 12 years of age to steadfastly discuss safety as a net known entity. In the history of vaccine development, there has never been a case of a net known new side effect being discovered six months post any individual vaccination if enough people have been vaccinated to see a signal. As this was the case with Rotashield, it took a few years to see that signal because that's how long it took enough folks to get vaccinated for that six-month period to show itself. Thus, the vaccine got halted thereafter. In the mRNA COVID vaccine world, we've already given over 7 million doses to children and we've passed the six-month threshold during this period, so we should have plenty of data. Post-interview, he did add this clarification. 
there are adverse events, AEs, that are A, discovered late in the life cycle of a vaccine. Example, we did not see myocarditis in the mRNA vaccine until they were at least uh, on the market for six months, primarily because young people were not getting the vaccine, which is the group primarily affected. This can occur, but it's extremely unlikely now because so many people have now received the mRNA vaccine in this young age group. The one caveat is that not many of the young children have received the vaccine, so we don't know much about the children under the age of 12 years of age. B, the belief that there are adverse events discovered 12 months to three years out is after an individual receives a vaccine is somewhat delusional because it's never happened. And the big example has been mRNA effects in for, uh, human fertility. This category has never happened in history of vaccinology and doesn't appear to be occurring now. Based on the weight of the evidence of my trust in Dr. Benjamin, I am now steadfastly recommending the mRNA vaccine for all children under the age of 12, excuse me, over the age of 12, regardless of risk or comorbid health condition. Changing my mind is a reflection of the changing known data sets, safety of the vaccination versus contracting the virus, and my trust in Dr. Benjamin. I take these decisions very seriously as I impart this information to you. I always make these decisions based on my own children and your children as well. That being said, this is a personal choice and not one that I would force on anyone. As always, I'm here to help with data and decision making, and that is all. Please do not email me if you are upset with any analysis or choice that I make based on the data. I know that there are some of you out there who are very vehemently disagree with my assertions and my assessments, and that is totally okay. Discourse is the key, and we are all in this fight together. A second takeaway from the interview was that masking worked very well in schools during the pandemic. The secondary attack rate for schools and children was less than 1% when masked, which is to say that if a child had COVID in the North Carolina school, they infected less than one in 100 other children. Dr. Benjamin stated that no matter what happens moving forward, we should be back in school face-to-face full-time as masking works to stop the spread of the SARS-2 virus in schools. Regardless of vaccination status at area SARS-2 volume, school activity is safe with masking in place. There has been a lot of fuss over masking for good reason, as it is a major annoyance, terrible for the environment, and a difficult socially for children. However, we have never faced a virus of this infectious capability coupled to its morbidity strength in the recent past. Therefore, we really need to think about our frustrations in a new light, children's health and in-person education. This week, the CDC has stated that they would that they would keep teachers and children masked in school regardless of vaccination status until things could slow down again. This seems prudent as many kids are still unvaccinated and Delta is raging all over the place. For me, the most important event that must occur in the future full stop is that children need to be in school, people. End of story. Face-to-face getting it done, learning, socializing, living, it has to happen. We can no longer sanction the educational emotional nightmare that has occurred over the last 12 to 18 months in the virtual learning debacle. It's got to stop. Thus, if we have to suffer masks, let's suffer them. I hope we don't. And, I, you know, it looks like we might be able to get away with it, but Delta is a train wreck and that may change in the very quick future. I hope that we all look at this very, very simply that it's about being in school with learning, education, friendship, everything occurring. In my mind, we should all get vaccinated to prevent this problem from manifesting as it is starting to again. 
Almost all the cases that are occurring now are in unvaccinated individuals, making the threat of all kinds of dysfunctional methods like lockdowns and virtual schooling leave the lips of some in power. We should never go back to the reality as it will haunt us for decades as our stunted children's health and economic trillion dollar handouts have, we have to reckon with this someday. I agree with my friend that masking in schools should occur if there is another major spike in disease as many, many children will not have the opportunity to receive the vaccine, coupled to the fact that they are not major spreaders of the disease to begin with, but need to be in school no matter what. So let's get it going. The K through eight age does not have the opportunity to get vaccinated. And this changes the above calculus regarding masking and a surge of COVID in a community. The rate of death of this age group is two per 100,000. And all that is a very small number. It is never insignificant for any child to die. MIS syndrome and all those other problems are not fun to have. Two major takeaways from the first half of this interview. Mask if necessary during a surge of COVID cases, especially in the K through eight age range. The older groups should absolutely vaccinate with an mRNA vaccine, Moderna or Pfizer. If there is a variant switch that evades the mRNA vaccine, then schools should stay open and kids should wear a mask. Education needs to take precedence now. The second half of the interview focuses primarily on the morbidity risks of a child developing myocarditis with and without vaccine damage to the brain, especially the sensory regions of the brain for taste and smell, long-term COVID, and brain fog, fatigue, the whole nine yards. I've covered this information extensively over the past five newsletters. One per 100,000 vaccines given will have a side effect in the mRNA COVID vaccine world. The vast majority will be mild self-limited myocarditis, which is mild cardiac inflammation. These issues will not require any treatment other than mild ibuprofen. Severe cardiac inflammation is exceedingly rare and almost entirely associated with a natural infection a thousand times more likely. The vaccine is not the problem here while COVID is and being out of school is. Okay, that's the end of issue number 33, which was August 2nd's newsletter. Now we're going to shift to issue number 35, August 16th's newsletter, and this is covid uh, coronavirus update number 42. So I started this newsletter with a very simple statement. Okay, let me just say it. This is going to cross everyone's lips. This stinks. Delta, Delta is really a pain in the butt, and I am very frustrated. But alas, we are here, and we will overcome this yet again. In the words of Marcus Aurelius, quote, Think of the life that you have lived until now as over and as a dead man, see what's left as a bonus and live it according to nature. Love the hand that fate deals you and play it as your own for what could be more fitting, end quote. So let us all buckle down, hang on and live every day with love and happiness despite the frustrations. I can tell you that I will continue to work, love, live, write, and now podcast to help make this journey better for anyone and everyone who is willing to listen, read, or be a part of this existence. Same as last time, the Delta variant is pretty much everything. The vaccines are working great overall, and we're not having a significant uptick in death if you've been vaccinated. As it stands today, the United States has had 36.7 million known cases, 621,000 deaths, which is an 8,000 8, case death increase from two weeks ago. Okay, here we go. COVID update 42. Delta is everywhere. Check. Delta is far more contagious. Check, check. 
Delta is not killing at a higher rate so far and likely won't pending another massive mutation. Check, check, check. Therefore, we need to keep our heads about the severity change. Lockdowns and school closures should not be on anyone's lips. The most important piece of data to pass along remains the knowledge that death is fleeting once vaccinated. Once previously recovered or vaccinated, memory T cells and B cells are working very well to prevent hospitalizations mostly and death almost completely. Mild breakthrough cases in vaccinated individuals are expected with waning immunity. We know that people can get this virus multiple times as we do with the common cold. Lasting immunity to the coronavirus appears to be good for severe disease, but not so great for mild illness, making infectious transfer a co continued possibility and problem. Reasonable immunity should be expected to be long-lasting for SARS-2 based on SARS-1 history via T-cell memory for covalent con convalescent post-infected individuals. We have the United Kingdom as a precursor to a likely trend of wave number four. By mid-September, this wave should be slowing down. Our clinic has had three significant COVID cases in children since the pandemic began with no deaths. Thus, the case for school closures in my mind is non-existent from a morbidity and mortality perspective. My current recommendations are the same. One, get vaccinated, take the guesswork out of this. Two, you may want to wait 11 or 12 weeks in between doses for better long-lasting immunity according to some European data, Ledford et al, 2021. Three, follow the links in the introduction above for an approach to the remaining immune solvent to reduce all the con all cause infectious mortality risk. Live every day like it is your last by honoring your mission to be a great human while you love people around you and while you love yourself. All right, let's get into the quick hits. Number one, if you have higher levels of neutralizing antibodies post-vaccination and likely by extension post-natural illness, your risk of reinfection is exceedingly low. Malapati R. 2021. Neutralizing antibodies are the antibodies that specifically prevent the virus from attaching to and infecting the cell, rendering them non-infectious. Thus, these antibodies are critical in the fight against pathogens. In previous studies with previous vaccine-related responses, abnormal host microbiome, stress, and other cause of immune dysregulation can ruin an immune response to a vaccination. De Jong et al. 2020, Kikolt Gleiser, J. 2021. Thus, as always, it behooves us all, adult or child, to sleep well and consistently around the period of vaccination. We should maintain an anti-inflammatory diet type to limit nutritional stressors and micronutrient insufficiencies that can sack our immune response. We absolutely should work on eight stress and response to it. Essentially, follow the same rules of healthy living to prevent COVID from killing us also. Help us respond well to this vaccine and any vaccines. COVID-19 is truly affecting the brains of hospitalized individuals that undergo significant inflammation during the post-infection. To survive the illness, unfortunately, leaves many individuals with residual neurologic deficits that pathologically look like dementia. In multiple autopsy analyses, pathologists are finding that astrocytes, specific brain support cells, are being attacked and damaged, leading to neuronal transmission dysfunction that we see as brain fog, fatigue, and memory loss. From Nature News, quote, in a second paper published online last December, a team, including Proust, studied the blood and cerebral spinal fluid of 11 people critically with COVID-19, all of whom had neurologic symptoms. 
all produced autoantibodies capable of binding neurons. And there is evidence that giving patients intravenous immune globulin, another type of antibody, to suppress a harmful autoantibody's action is quite successful, says Proust. These pathways, astrocytes, parasites, and autoantibodies, are not mutually exclusive and are probably not the only ones. It is likely that people with COVID-19 experience neurological symptoms for a range of reasons. Peirce says, a key question is what proportion of cases is caused by each of these pathways? That will determine treatment, he says. Marshall M. 2021. The data keeps mounting higher and higher regarding the neurologic side effects of natural SARS-2 infection. If autoantibodies keep developing against our self tissue in response to the inflammation of the immune response to SARS-2, then we will see more acute and chronic disease manifestations in survivors of disease. In these cited studies above, we see pathology specimens directly noting the affected regions and cells of the brain. We also see which other actions are contributing, including parasite blood flow loss and auto self-reactive neural antibodies. Therefore, as with COVID in general, the virus and subsequent immune responses cause damage to our cellular structures through multiple processes, making treatment that much more difficult once the virus has established itself. It will be unfortunate to see the volume of neurologic disease that follows the Delta variant in the unvaccinated, previously vaccinated, uh, not infected populations of Americans. We have clear evidence that it is happening. Now the big question is at what frequency and morbidity? With most of the at-risk elderly and metabolically diseased Americans either having died or been vaccinated against SARS-2, we are seeing a shift in disease incidence to the younger age. Thus, by definition, we are going to see far less death and morbidity than all of the first three waves. However, we are now likely to see a large wave of mild post-infectious complications by the three stated pathways. To what degree remains to manifest itself? Another article on COVID-related cognitive deficits can be found in the newsletter at the link provided. All right, number three, back to the variants. We are seeing that the Delta variant continues to remain as a major player. The report out of Israel was worrisome that 39% of the uh, vaccinated individuals had coverage against the disease. However, it appears that in multiple other studies, the respect to death and hospitalization were still at 80 plus percent, closer to the 90% range, risk of severe symptomatic disease or death is covered. So that is good news. Let's look at one more study. Here is one looking at vaccine efficacy that is a little more sobering with regard to the infection failures, but still excellent with hospitalization death. Quote, Although clinical trials and real-world studies have affirmed the effectiveness and safety of the FDA-authorized COVID-19 vaccines, reports of breakthrough infections and persistent Emergence of new variants highlight the need for vigilant monitoring the effectiveness of these vaccines. Here we compare the effectiveness of two full-length spike protein-encoded mRNA vaccines from Moderna and Pfizer in the Mayo Clinic Health System over time from January to July of 2021, during which either the Alpha or Delta variant was highly prevalent. We defined cohorts of vaccinated unvaccinated individuals from Minnesota matched on age, sex, race, history of prior SARS-CoV-2 PCR testing and the date of full vaccination. Both vaccines were highly effective during the study period against SARS-CoV-2 infection, uh, mRNA-1273, uh, which is the Moderna variant, had 85%, and the 16 
2B, which is a Pfizer at 76%. However, in July, the effectiveness against infection was considerably lower for the mRNA of the uh, Pfizer went all the way down to 76% with an even more pronounced, oh, excuse me, of the Moderna went down to 76% with an even more pronounced reduction in the effectiveness of the Pfizer to 42%. Again, this is against symptomatic disease, not against something of hospitalization or death. Notably, the Delta variant prevalence in Minnesota increased from 0.7% in May to over 70% in July, whereas the Alpha variant decreased from 85 to 13% in the same time period. Comparing rates of infection between matched individuals fully vaccinated with the mRNA of 1273 versus the BNT, which is Moderna, across the health system in multiple sites. mRNA 1273, which is uh, Moderna conferred a two-fold risk reduction against breakthrough infection compared to the BNT162B2 Pfizer. In Florida, in, which is currently experiencing its largest COVID-19 surge to date, the risk of infection in July after full vaccination was about 60% lower in the Pfizer group than a full vaccination of the Moderna group. Our observational study highlights that while both Vaccines are highly protective against severe disease. Further evaluation of mechanisms underlying the differences in their effectiveness, such as dosing regimens and vaccine composition, are warranted, end quote, Peronic et al. 2021. Thus, we see the effectiveness of the Pfizer mRNA vaccine against the Delta variant is 88%, according to a study by Bernal, but according to the recent study, that's much lower with the uh, Delta variant. So everything's changing. The take-home point, though, remains. Vaccines are effective at preventing hospitalization and death. That's what really matters. Again, still no evidence at this two-week mark of any significant problems in children with the Delta variant. Lambda and Gamma don't seem to be gaining any traction against the Delta variant as a dominant player in the United States. Number four, in an excellent blog from New England Journal of Medicine, Dr. Paul Sachs makes quick work of the crazy situations related to the Delta uh, variant and vaccinated person breakthroughs. Here are some of the highlights. Quote, these suggest that vaccinated people with COVID-19 could spread the virus to others as easily as unvaccinated people. It's not proof, as it discounts the immune response, which may dampen contagious virus and shorten the duration of viral shedding. It's also in contrast with other studies that do show lower viral burdens over time in people who have been vaccinated. Regardless, it underscores the plain fact that anyone with symptoms consistent with COVID-19 needs to isolate until recovery vaccination status notwithstanding. For those diagnosed, we may even need to institute different isolation policies since the higher viral load seen in Delta could mean even more transmission further out from the onset of symptoms. Already, the CDC has recommended that vaccinated people exposed to COVID-19 should get tested afterward. A routine to pre-vaccine guidance will be interesting. Should we also recommend antigen testing in breakthrough cases before return to work? PCR may continue to detect non-viable fragments long beyond the contagious period, so antigen may be the right way to go. What the outbreak can't tell us is how bad this would have been without the vaccines at all. Yes, there were lots of cases, but so far, relatively few hospitalizations and deaths. Yikes, the mind boggles. Get as many eligible people vaccinated as possible. Remember, the vaccines reduce transmission risk in two ways. Decreasing the probability of infection in the first place, either symptomatic or asymptomatic, and also decreasing the duration of infectiousness for those who do get infected. Th that first effect is ironclad. No virus, no transmission. The second one is just a bonus. The evidence is strong that both of these are in play with COVID-19 vaccines. This is from Paul Sachs, 2021 in the New England Journal of Medicine. All right. Here's my take on point. 
The vaccines are working well for Delta and all of the variants. Death is not happening and hospitalizations are rare after the two-dose series. This is the most important point, people. Otherwise, Delta, as we are seeing, is a major contagious nightmare. And I'm going to show you some data that will blow your mind. It's more transmissible now than smallpox, influenza, SARS-1, and MERS-1 is slightly less infectious than chickenpox and a lot less infectious than measles. Measles is the worst train wreck infectiousness-wise, and thank God we're vaccinated. We don't see it anymore. The R0, or reproductive rate, for those infections is 1 to 2. Usually they say 1.2 for influenza, which means for every one person infected, 1.2 people will be infected. For SARS-2 alpha, the first variant, it was 3, which means for every one person infected, 3 will be infected. Now SARS-2 delta is a 6, chickenpox is a 10, and measles was a 12. Therefore, the SARS-2 Delta for every infected person, six people will get infected. Those six will infect six and on and on and on. This is an exponential pattern when you look at reproductive rate going from two to six to 12. Okay, let's look at this from a numerical perspective. Let's say the flu infects one person. That one person will infect 1.2 people. Let's call it two to make numbers easy. That one person infects two, those two infect four, those four infect eight, those eight infect 16. So at four Distances out, we're at 16 people. SARS-2 alpha, that one person infects three, the three infect nine, nine, 27, 27 becomes 81. So SARS-2 alpha at four out is 81. SARS-2 delta now is a six. So you go from one to six, six to 36, 36 to 216, and 216 to 1296, right? Let me do two more. Chicken pox, one to 10, 10 to 100, 100 to 1,000, 1,000 to 10,000 at four out. And measles is crazy at 12. 1 to 12, 12 to 144, 144 to 1728, and 1728 to 20,736. So just from SARS to Alpha to SARS to Delta, we've gone from 81 patients infected after four cycles to 1,296. That's how much more contagious this virus is going from a reproductive rate of 3 to reproductive rate of six. And if it was measles, you go from 81 from a SARS alpha to 1296 to a SARS delta to 20,736 for measles. I mean, get, that's just crazy wildfire. The only silver lining here is that morbidity is not worse between alpha and delta. Okay, next, number five, masking question from a reader. Hi, I am on the board of directors for a new charter school in somewhere. We met last night to discuss whether to require masks for students for the first 30 days of school. One argument made against masks was that kids are breathing in too much carbon dioxide and the deprivement of oxygen is not beneficial for the brain development of a child. Our grades are K through seven. I wondered if you had any information, research on this theory. Thanks for your help that all you can provide. I am trying to make the best decision for our students. So my response is this. That's a very thoughtful question, but it's very difficult to answer. While the risk of a bad outcome remains incredibly low at this age, it is not zero as death is at 0.01% for the very young, which is similar to the flu for this age group. The issues start to creep in more in the later teenage years, although still very, very small. Masking in school makes sense at this point for all ages until this wave blows over. The Delta variant is a different animal altogether with a reproductive rate of six, which is twice as high as the Alpha variant. The risk of CO2 overload is not scientifically proven to be clinically relevant. 
The simple solution for me would be to compromise and be proactive by taking a break every hour and go outside where kids can mask free for five minutes socially distanced talking in groups. This this will be great for the kids because they get to socialize, which they need, and hopefully they get great air outside because it's clean and the parents will be pleased and all parties will be appeased. The first rule for me is to do no harm. I think that we do not have the luxury anymore with COVID as we are always losing a little somewhere, whether it's socially, academically, societally, medically, or mentally. We do the best that we can and we pray for a great outcome. When looking through the research, I could no find no solid evidence of risk, even in healthcare workers using the restrictive N95 masks, which make much more difficult for CO2 expulsion than the traditional masks. So, you know, for me, as of right now, CO2 is not a problem. And I ended that by saying, hope that helps. Okay. I also asked Dr. Danny Benjamin to weigh in again, and he says he thinks universal masking against Delta should be here until this volume decreases. He also responded that he thinks, you know, we should really consider uh, making sure athletes vaccinate so they can play sports outside without any big issue. He has an op-ed last week in the New York Times, and the link is in the newsletter. It's an excellent read. Okay, section two. How will COVID evolve? I have looked into this question a few different ways and it always in general comes back to the same answer. The virus will mutate in a more infectiously fit but less morbid variety. Viruses have one goal, reproduce and survive. Sounds a lot like our DNA. A really nice article in The New Yorker this week has looked at this topic very well. Quote, during this pandemic, we've developed and deployed vaccines in real time. Meanwhile, SARS-CoV-2 is replicating not in a dozen flasks, but in tens of millions of people. So some of whom have been immunized, all of whom exert selective pressures for the virus to find new and more efficient ways to replicate. The virus will continue to mutate every moment of every day for years or decades. The fear is that it will hit upon a second citrate moment, a mutation or a set of mutations that enables it to circumvent our vaccines, which so far have proved spectacularly effective and resilient. For those who remain unvaccinated, the majority of humankind, there is also the horrifying prospect of a variant that is vastly more contagious or deadly. Every few months, we learn of a version of this virus that somehow seems worse, alpha, beta, gamma, delta. The coronavirus appears destined to march its way through the Greek alphabet, a prize fighter getting quicker, slicker, stronger with each opponent. What are the limits of its evolutionary fitness? Are they knowable? And if so, how close are we to reaching them? There are three major events that will likely occur. One, we, we have seen the largest adaptation already and the only minor effects will occur as the Delta variant is exceedingly fit already. Only minor changes will next will follow. Number two, the virus will mutate and evade the vaccine to a large extent, but suffer loss of infectiousness and morbidity. Number three, a complete lock change will occur in an exceedingly rare muted event that makes the virus capable of sidestepping the current vaccine completely. While possible, this is highly unlikely based on the virological history of pandemics. The good news remains in the event that this occurs, we can rapidly reproduce a new targeted vaccine against this change. The problem here is the logistics of producing and distributing another vaccine in rapid fashion. Quote, Starr told me, The fact that the same antibodies bind both of them should give us confidence. With new coronavirus variants, we may see a partial decrease in immunity, but given the polyclonal response, Starr said, the fact that vaccines generate not one type of antibody, but many, 
When one set of antibodies drops the rope, another will pick it up. I don't think there will ever be a variant that completely escapes our immune systems. We've never gone, we're, excuse me, we're never going to wipe the slate clean and be back to totally naive population. Over time, the infections we do get will be more likely to be mild and asymptomatic. Where that process takes a year, five years, 10 years longer, I do not know. For me, the next 24 months will be interesting for our society and our resilience. The fourth wave has been a psychological blow to America, and we need to recognize it for what it's worth. The vaccines still work, we are okay, and we will get through this. The quoted par- por- portions of that red section are from Kular in the New Yorker magazine article that I referenced. So, you know, that that's sort of the sum total of the, the information in, in coronavirus updates number 41 and 42. But I'm going to say this, folks. You know, I've been doing this now for 18 months at the patient care level, right at the front lines. And, and it is very, very, very clear to me that kids are tolerating this virus very well. They have some side effects as they get older with loss of sense of smell and some other problems. But by and large, we do not need to be fear-based around the children. It will be annoying if they get sick and go through some of the stuff. There will be very few tragic events that do occur in some of these children. But when you compare it to the totality of society, the loss of academic time spent face-to-face is we, we just can't worry about these couple rare cases at the expense of 22 million kids falling way farther behind, being emotionally, mentally, physically stunted from this nightmare that we've been living through the last 18 months. It makes the most sense to me to mask up until this variant passes and deal with each one as they come vaccinate as many kids as we can over the age of 12 years, pray that the vaccines are safe in the underage underage groups and use them as needed. But by and large, the most important thing to do remains lifestyle factors. Eat healthy, anti-inflammatory style diets. Avoid all processed and junk foods. Make sure your kids are getting to sleep on time. Help them to be mentally grounded. Pray with them, meditate with them, hug them, love them. Do everything you can to set your home up for absolute success against SARS-CoV-2 and any virus that shows itself down the road. Whew, that was a lot of reading and talking. By and large, folks, I just want to tell you this. Hug those kids. Keep your head up. We'll get through this together. Have a great day. This is Dr. M signing off. Bye-bye.